Hello, welcome to Medical Murmurs, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. My guest today is Dr. Payal Gupta. She's an allergist and immunologist in New York City, and she has academic affiliations with both Mount Sinai and SUNY Downstate. She is also the co-host of the Itch Podcast at itchpodcast.com, where she talks about allergies and asthma and immunology issues at a level that the public can understand. Dr. Gupta, welcome to Medical Murmurs. Thank you for having me. Dr. Gupta, I was, was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your early life, things about your childhood, your parents growing up, and then maybe how you became interested in medicine. Sure. So, um, I mean, my early childhood, I was actually born in Nairobi, Kenya. And so technically I am an immigrant. We moved here when I was about five years old in 1983. Um, and I went to kindergarten in Flushing, New York. And then after that, my dad, who was actually a physician, also um, ended up getting a residency position at Michigan State University. And so we ended up moving all the way over to Michigan, which is where I grew up. Um, and and then from there, I ended up doing a lot of my schooling in Michigan. I went to the University of Michigan for undergrad, and then I went to Michigan State College of Human Medicine for medical school. And then I, um, you know, uh, and then went to Chicago for my residency, and then moved back to New York City for my fellowship. So, you know, my early childhood was. Uh, I, you know, I don't really remember uh, being in Kenya too much, which is kind of sad, but I guess I was pretty little. And I think the transition from moving to Kenya to America was pretty drastic for me. I had to, um, you know, participate in English as a second language programs because I really didn't know English. I knew uh, Hindi and a little bit of Swahili. And so I think it was probably a big transition for me as a little kid. So I don't really remember Kenya too much, but growing up was pretty nice. You know, um, Michigan's uh, East Lansing, Michigan is nice because it's a college town. So there is some diversity. I wish there had been a little bit more, but um, I definitely, I, th I feel like I had a nice childhood. Um, however, my, um, you know, my mom did pass away when I was 12 years old. Um, she had asthma and pretty severe asthma and ended up passing away of an asthma attack. Um, and so, yeah. And so that obviously changed my trajectory uh, quite a bit. And, you know, at the age of 12, you're kind of in a weird transition anyway. <laughs> so, um, but I think it, um, uh, you know, I think that my dad was great and we, um, we all held together pretty well. And, uh, and so, yeah, so that kind of is my early childhood. And how, um, when your, when your mother died, did she die at home or was she hospitalized? So uh, actually my brother and I were at home and she, uh, had had an asthma attack actually just a month before that, that did require hospitalization. And then when she kind of, um, let us know that she wasn't feeling well again. We called, I actually ran over to my neighbor's house and they called 911 and, um, you know, she was talking and, um, before she left for the emergency room, but 
she ended up passing away in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. That's obviously pretty connected to the specialty that you chose. Yeah, it was. um, I mean, I suffer from uh, allergies and asthma um, myself. And so it was uh, during medical school, it just felt like the right decision. And I also um, liked learning about, I also liked treating both adults and kids. And so the combination of having a condition, having my mom suffer from a condition and just all of it just made a lot of sense for me. And to fill the audience in, you've trained in both internal medicine, uh, which means mostly adults as well as pediatrics before doing your fellowship training in allergy and immunology. Right. So I kind of, like I said, I always knew that I wanted to, you know, treat both adults and kids. And when you want to do that, you either do family medicine or you do uh, something called medpeds. Uh, which is a lesser known, I think, residency path, but it's where you get trained in both internal medicine and pediatrics. And the difference between family medicine and medpeds is that you can subspecialize after doing medpeds. And so I I kind of knew that I wanted to treat both populations. And then ultimately, uh, allergy was the perfect blend because no matter if you're from internal medicine or if you only pursue pediatrics, you end up doing both um, when you actually practice as an allergist. So it just, it really gave me an awesome foundation to be able to treat patients of all age groups. And after completing your training, by the way, do you think you did enough years of training? (laughs) Right. Didn't we all? (laughs) We've all done a lot of training. Um, I know some people have done MPHs and MBAs and, you know, lots of doctors have kind of just been in school for a while. (laughs) (laughs) What, what do you actually think about how long it is taking us as doctors before we can start our fully adult lives? I think it's, I think it definitely affects people in different ways, you know, um, definitely the debt that you accumulate and then, in addition, you kind of, I think a lot of people postpone a lot of, uh, a lot of life moments because of their training. And, you know, you're just in a, you're in a, you're in a tunnel for a while. And then once you come out of the tunnel, your friends have kind of taken a lot of different paths and have done a lot more, it feels like sometimes than you have. (laughs) Um, but, um, but I think it's, you know, I think it's interesting because of all the other options now, like physician assistant programs and in particular, I would say, because that has a pretty uh, straightforward pathway and, you know, obviously you can't practice on your own, but you do end up practicing and being in medicine in a pretty significant way. And so I just think that there's options now that weren't even available when I was going through training. Could you tell me, uh, for the benefit of of the audience who are non-physicians, could you tell me a bit about what it is that you do in your practice? Sure. As an allergy, asthma, and immunology specialist, I basically treat conditions that are allergic, but also that are 
you know, also the immunology aspect. So um, allergic conditions include things like allergies of the eyes and nose, um, seasonal allergies, or uh, just environmental allergies in general. So people can be allergic to dust, they can be allergic to trees, tree pollen, grass pollen, weed pollen. So I treat all of those. I treat um, allergic conditions of the skin, which is called eczema. Uh, I treat asthma, which can be allergic, or sometimes it cannot be allergic, but it's still asthma. So there's different forms of asthma. Uh, And we also treat immunological conditions uh, where the immune system doesn't work properly uh, for some people. And so that's also a part of our specialty. So what, what kind of conditions would you, would you include in that? So things like common variable immunodeficiency, um, CVID is often how it's abbreviated. Uh, and that's a condition where your, um, your body either doesn't produce enough immunoglobulin, which is you know a protein in our body that helps us fight infection, or it produces it, but it's not functional. Um, and so we help to, you know, you might have frequent infections that are unexplained. And so as an immunologist, I would look at certain blood work and your history and try to figure out if that might be why, you, why you're getting frequent infections. are listening to Medical Murmurs. Now, you know, I'll tell you something funny. I mean, I'm, I, this is very, very common, but I, even though I had completed uh, medical school, postgraduate training, but I got the shock of my life when in my 30s, for the first time in my life, I started to get seasonal allergies and became allergic to cat dander. Yeah. So people can technically develop allergies at any point in their lives. Uh, usually, you know, you'll see some signs of it as a child, but it's not always that way. You can start, you know, really seeing the symptoms more during adolescence, during, um, you know, your 20s, 30s. Um, Some people even in their 50s, you know, will start experiencing symptoms of allergies. And I think with the way that our environment is shifting and, you know, global warming occurring and the higher levels of CO2 that we're seeing, we are seeing that the pollen levels are actually going up year by year. And so I think that that's playing a big role where um, everyone is starting or, you know, not everyone, but I do anticipate that slowly a lot of us will start seeing allergic symptoms because the pollen counts are just going to be so high. I asked Dr. Gupta about treatments for reducing allergic responses rather than just suppressing symptoms. So there's something called allergy immunotherapy. And so what that means is that we expose you. So first we have to test you and see if you're truly an allergic person and what you're allergic to. And these are, this is, we're talking specifically for environmental allergies and not food allergies, because that's a completely separate topic, but something that I also treat. So specifically what we do is we test you for the allergies. And then once we know what you're allergic to, we can put you on this allergy immunotherapy. And what that means is that we take the proteins that are causing those allergies. So let's say you're allergic to tree pollen and cats um, and dust mites. 
Um, so we take the proteins that we know cause those allergies and, um, people that are much smarter than me have, you know, figured out what those proteins are. They, we put them in a serum form. Um, and again, those are things that are bought commercially and, um, we make a mixture for you that is kind of diluted down. So we start with the lowest dilution of that mixture and we give you injections every week. Okay. And every week we start exposing your body to more and more of that protein. And up until we get to a certain level where we know from studies that we can effectively get you, if we can effectively get you up to that certain level, then your body's immune reaction to those things will turn from an allergic to a non-allergic reaction. So over time, we can shift the way that your body's reacting because actually allergies are just uh, essentially an inappropriate reaction of your immune system, uh, reacting to things that it shouldn't be reacting to. And so we're just trying to teach it that, hey, this is not something that you should be reacting to. This is something normal in our environment, and we want you to understand it, recognize it, and stop forming an inflammatory response to it. So you know, that's the classic way of doing immunotherapy, but there's also um, a new FDA approved therapy. Not, I mean, it's not so new in the last like five years, I do believe uh, it's come out. uh, It's called sublingual immunotherapy. And what that is, is it's tablets that dissolve under your tongue. Um, Right now we only have them for dust mites, ragweed and grass. So, you know, it's only kind of beneficial for people that specifically have those type of allergies. And we can only treat one allergen at a time with the way that the FDA approved these medications. So, you know, for example, if you have a dust mite allergy, but you also have a tree allergy, but your symptoms are kind of year around and you feel like the allergy shots are too big of a time commitment, you know, because like I said, it's weekly for um, three to six months and then it goes to monthly. Um, and we continue the monthly shots for about five years. And so it is a commitment, but you know, and then after the five years, do you just stop? So after the five years, um, that's when you kind of get to this point where you make a decision, you know, for some people it's made such a big difference in their lives, uh, that they really don't want to stop the maintenance. That's what we call maintenance therapy when you're getting monthly shots. Uh, what we know and from you know the data that we have is that we can't really predict. So if you get shots for five years, um, some a third of people, it's like a rule of thirds. Uh, if we look at those people five years down the road, a third of those people are doing better a third or are still consistently doing fine. Uh, they don't have their allergy symptoms. A third are starting to feel like their symptoms are coming back a little bit. And a third are kind of really reverting back to where they were before they started shots. So we can't really predict which group you'll fall into. Uh, and so some people who have really benefited just, and they feel like the monthly shots are not a big deal, they'll continue to come in for the monthly shots. For others, if they don't like coming in for the monthly shots and they'd like to kind of, it's almost like you're taking a little bit of a gamble. They can stop the shots and see how their, how their immune system goes. Are they, and, uh, are these intramuscular shots or? 
No, they're subcutaneous. Okay. So they're, it's a very, very fine needle and, um, it's just, you know, usually done in your arms or another fatty area of your like hip area. Um, just depending on your, you know, where you'd like to have it done, but, um, but no, it's just subcutaneous. I was wondering if you could tell me a, a patient story, something that's really stuck with you. Um, you know, talk to me about when you first met the patient, what was going on with them, what their feelings were, and 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 what the outcome was. I think happy is probably what people need right now, <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to a tragic story. And I guess I already talked about my mom, which is tragic. So yeah, we can um, we can talk a little bit more about um, something positive. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm going to talk about one of my asthma patients actually. And, um, so this woman in her forties and, um, she's had severe asthma for a good amount of her life, but I think she kind of got used to the way that she was breathing and maybe wasn't aware of how severe her asthma was um, just because, you know, she was getting frequent steroids, uh, oral steroids to control her asthma. And she was getting them from the ER, from urgent care, from her primary doctor. And then finally, someone referred her to me to manage her asthma. And when I saw her and heard her history, I was instantly a little bit disappointed in our system, but also just uh, hopeful that we could kind of get her life a little bit less chaotic because of her underlying asthma. And so, you know, as you know, in the last uh, five to 10 years, we've had a lot of change in the way that asthma is treated, which is really, really exciting. In the past, you know, we had to rely just on these inhaled steroids, uh, inhaled long-acting uh, beta agonists, and uh, some other very helpful, but not always helpful to every patient treatments, you know. And so it's nice now that we have uh, treatments called biologic treatments. And what that means is that they kind of target certain uh, cells in our uh, certain inflammatory certain cells that mediate the inflammatory reaction in our body that cause asthma and that cause all of the inflammation and kind of issues that lead to poorly controlled asthma. And so I, you know, we evaluated her. Um, she had been, you know, she has, she has a daughter. Um, she would frequently be scared that you know, every time she had an asthma attack, that something would happen to her and she was a single mother and that she would have to leave her daughter behind, you know? So there's just all these kind of social issues, you know, and she was also the primary breadwinner for her family. And so for her to be consistently sick and unable to breathe, um, was also something that, you know, was just so troubling. And so after we evaluated, you know, as, as, as an emergency doctor, you know, people who get past a certain point, with struggling to breathe, have a fear of death. You know, they have a fear of death with them a lot of the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, and it, it makes sense, you know, it, uh, that sense of not being able to breathe is, 
scary. You know, you're suffocating, you're not breathing well. And all of a sudden your inhaler is not working. And so you have to go to the emergency room, you know, you have to seek help. Um, and so it's, uh, and also people get really reliant on their inhaler, uh, to breathe and they don't realize that that's a part of the problem, you know, uh, is not recognizing that these medications that we give to you to help you breathe, if you're overusing them, that's a sign that something's not okay, you know, and sometimes that's not communicated well to the patient, unfortunately. Um, and so they think everything's okay because they think they're kind of like, you know, using these medications three, four, five times a day and they're, they're feeling okay, but then they're, you know, they're lapsing, um, they're having these exacerbations that, you know, they get sick with a cold and then all of a sudden everything's horrible and they're in the emergency room, you know? So regardless with her story though, we, we did evaluate her and she was a good candidate for, uh, for a couple of the biologic agents. We started her on one of them. Uh, she didn't do as well as I thought she could have. And so we switched her to, a different one. And then she responded really, really well. And, you know, I don't, I don't like to mention the names of the medications because then it feels like a, um, an advertisement, but regardless, she, she just has done so beautifully that her life just feels completely different. You know, she feels like a completely different person. She's not scared all the time. Um, She's not worried about having to leave her daughter behind because, you know, something happens and her breathing becomes really um, restricted. And, and really it was, you know, we were on this path of biologics and doing all of this. And in the middle of it all, she, she wasn't as uh, what we call compliant, but then she had a really bad exacerbation that put her in the hospital for almost like two weeks. And I think that was the point where she got really scared and she started to follow up more regularly, um, was more consistent with her appointments and then really just, you know, uh, was open to trying these new medications and now she's doing great. So that's a story that just highlights, um, number one, the, um, the issues that asthmatics go through on a daily basis with their asthma, if it's not controlled the overuse of urgent care and emergency services sometimes for asthma patients. Um, and then, so it also highlights the third thing that's most important is that we've come so we've come so, somewhere, we've changed the way that we're treating asthma. And so I always wonder, I always think of, to myself, you know, if my mom had had these biologic treatments, where would she be now? You know, so it's just it's just the power of research, the power of movement uh, in you know medicine. That must be a very bittersweet thought. Yeah, I mean it's just, but it's you know now when I get to treat an asthmatic and you know and especially for this woman, you know she has this daughter. Um, it's you know it kind of just reminds me of yeah, I don't want her daughter to be without her mom, you know, because that happened to me. And so it's just, it's one of those stories that just reminds you of, yeah, it's sad that, you know, my mom had severe asthma in the nineties where we didn't have this information, but now I'm just happy that we are moving forward and that there's people that are doing research and really, you know, changing 
the face of asthma and changing the treatments that are available. It's interesting, you know, in medicine, you have a decade where one specialty leaps forward and others seem to stagnate, you know, and it seems to be an area where we've seen real change over the lot in recent times. Absolutely. And it's just kind of getting that information out to everyone, you know, as a subspecialist. I hear about the issue of knowledge translation and, you know, the amazing thing to me now as an emergency physician, um, because we see a lot of uninsured patients, I see a lot of people um, either who uh, don't see doctors regularly uh, for access reasons or uh, have poor compliance. And especially among asthmatics, I see a lot of people who go around if you listen to their lungs any given day, there's a wheeze, they're, having, they're, they're breathing, it takes them a long time to get the air out of their lungs. Um, you, even if you're just sitting in the, in the room with them talking, you can hear the wheeze in their voice. And that's any given day. That's not just the day when they come in sick. And they have been intubated every year, sometimes more than once a year. And I don't know that what you're talking about has translated out into general uh, widespread use yet. No, you're absolutely right. I think that unfortunately there are uh, there are a lot of uh, physicians out there that don't understand these treatments that are available. And uh, asthma is frequently managed by uh, primary care physicians, which I think is absolutely okay when it's mild asthma. Um, but when it becomes moderate to severe, which is, you know, the other categories of asthma, then I really do think that a specialist is needed at that time. Um, and so, you know, it, it's definitely a learning curve. And I think that hopefully over time, uh, we'll all understand what is available. And and even I think in the ER, that knowledge should be known because then maybe the ER physicians would be more open to sending the patient, not just back to their primary care doctor, but specifically to either a pulmonologist or an allergist that they know does do, you know, does treat severe asthma. And so I think even some pulmonologists and some allergists don't do biologic treatment. So you really have to know which doctors are doing these treatments and um, making sure that you're sending the patient to that particular physician. It is so interesting in medicine to watch how, I mean, we we're talking about knowledge translation and how it, it really is a decade or more typically before uh, things that are well demonstrated to be efficacious um, diffuse out into practice beyond the leading edge of, of people who've who've taken up the knowledge. So, uh, you know, I was wondering, I know you said maybe we'd had enough sad stories because you did talk about um, your own mother's story, but, I, you know, we've, we're talking about asthma, and I've certainly seen people who've had some bad outcomes in asthma. I was wondering if you could talk about if you've had someone who hasn't done well. You know, I did actually, and this was this was a peripheral kind of management of asthma. Unfortunately, I had a friend who I didn't. It was a friend of a friend, I should say, and I ran into him uh, at a party, and 
and he wasn't, you know, I could tell that he was wheezing, you know, I was talking to him and I was like, he's wheezing. I could hear him coughing here and there. And I was like, Hey, do you have, you know, do you have asthma? What's going on? It's just, you know, it's a part of medicine that never leaves you. Even when you're out, <laughs> you start diagnosing people and, you know, he's like, yeah. Well, well, try being a general is like me, right? Like, so I'm attuned to, you know, I'm, I'm spotting things left, right, and center when I'm in the supermarket <laughs> talking with friends, but go on. Yeah, no, exactly. And we all do it, you know, but um, especially with breathing issues, you know, I, I'm pretty open with it and I just always want to address it <laughs> just, just to do it. Um, and so, you know, he's like, no, I do have asthma. And then I ended up finding out that he didn't have insurance. And so that was a part of why he wasn't really actively seeking out care and that he had been getting, you know, albuterol inhalers when he was traveling to other countries. Uh, so he'd stocked up on uh, inhalers. And so it was just kind of relying on these medications to keep him going. And so, you know, I told him, I was like, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't have insurance, you can come and see me and I'll just, uh, you know, at least take a look, figure out what's going on and we can, we can move from there. Um, and I think it was one of those situations that I was meant to encounter him and have some kind of interaction with him because it really um, made me want to do more in, in the sphere of patient education and, you know, uh, more advocacy work, but essentially, you know, he did come to see me once. Um, I gave him, he was definitely wheezing. He was not, you know, he was talking, he was fine. He was moving around, but he was very tight. He was wheezing. I ended up giving him oral steroids and um, treating him for that particular exacerbation and uh, following up with him a week later, and he said he was feeling a little, he was feeling better, but that he was traveling. And then he went, he traveled, actually, he went to Mexico. Um, and I talked to people who were with him in Mexico, and they said that he was fine. You know, he was, uh, he was actually a DJ. So he, he was DJing and out there and doing his thing. And, uh, and then when he came back and he was actually 50 years old, um, when he came back, he, he wasn't doing well, I assume. And he ended up passing away later that week. Um, and so i had had such close contact with him, um, you know, just about two to three weeks before he passed away. Um, and, you know, I don't really know exactly what happened, you know, and what caused his death. But everyone had said that he had an inhaler in his when he was found, um, unfortunately, in his home, that he had an inhaler in his hand. And, you know, but again, he was 50 years old and there could have been multiple things that, you know, caused a sudden acute situation like that. So maybe he did have an exacerbation of his asthma, but maybe it caused some kind of an um heart attack or arrhythmia. And you know, I, I'm not really or sure. He'd been recently traveling. He could have had a pulmonary embolus, which could have made him short of breath, you know. Yeah, there I mean, and again, you know, he's 50 without any health insurance. So it was uh 
you know, it was one of those stories that kind of brought light to so many issues in our country as far as health insurance, um, just education. And that's really when I started to get involved with the American Lung Association. And I wanted to do more patient education, but on a, on a more kind of open level, you know, just being, having more access to people, um, with their voice. And so I became, um, a volunteer national spokesperson. So I speak, you know, to the media about asthma. I speak to, uh, the media about air pollution and just about all of these things that can affect people and the, the things that we need to watch out for and how people can, you know, better take care of themselves and, uh, the, the options that are available, you know? And so the American Lung Association does a really good job with that. And I'm really, you know, it was a sad situation, but I think in a weird way, it was just meant to be that I was, that I ran into him when I did and that I could be a part of that story. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. How, how did it affect you when you learned that he died? It was, um, I, you know, in the field of allergy and asthma, you don't see that many deaths. I'm not, my asthma patients, you know, there are 10 deaths from asthma a day in this country. So deaths from asthma are not rare, but I have not had uh, many patients die from asthma. Um, Actually, I don't, I think this was really my first patient Um, besides a patient that when I was moonlighting in the ER, I had a, a small child that came in who passed away from an asthma attack. But other than those two instances in this country, I have not had um, very many deaths in my practice. And so it was, it was overwhelming. I felt, um, I just felt very, in a weird way, responsible. And I think that happens to a lot of physicians in these situations where you kind of second guess and you say, oh my God, maybe I should have done this or checked in on him more or really like, you know, made sure that he understood how severe his asthma was more kind of just, you just second guess everything, you know? So it was, it had a huge impact on me. And I definitely, like I said, it just made me want to do more in the space of education and advocacy. You know, I, 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 you know, people have a lot of, uh, descriptions for that process of going back over and over a case in your mind, sort of ruminating on it. I think most of us as physicians do that when we have a bad outcome. Was that your experience? Yeah. Yeah. No, it was absolutely my experience. I, you know, I talked to multiple people, multiple friends in the field, um, just to kind of put my, wrap my head around it. Uh, and you know, you lose that ability to think logically about the case when I think you have a negative outcome sometimes. And so at least I do. And I think that's also a part of deciding what field of medicine you're going to be in. I know that's a part of your podcast is just, you know, uh, targeting medical students also is, 
you know, knowing what kind of a personality you have, you know, not everybody is meant for, uh, is meant to see death on a, on a regular basis. And I know that for me, it's not healthy. I I don't process death very well. Um, it doesn't work for me to see patient deaths frequently. Like, you know, there's certain fields that you are going to be exposed to death a little bit more. Emergency medicine is one of them, depending on where you work, you know? And so you just, you have to know, or oncology, you know, treating cancer patients, which is something that I considered. I considered pediatric oncology at one point, but then I just realized it wasn't right for me because I, I really get affected by death. And, um, and I also second guess myself a lot, um, in those situations. And so you have to really understand what is going to be healthy for you, uh, and really make time to sit with that a little bit, as opposed to just, um, thinking about which field sounds, I guess, cool sometimes, you know? Well, how did you pick allergy and immunology? Well, I think we we talked about that uh, a little bit. It was, you know, I suffer from environmental allergies. I don't suffer from food allergies, but I suffer from environmental allergies. I'm allergic to cats. I'm allergic to seasonal, you know, tree pollen and grass and weeds. So it was a big part of my life. I was always that kid that was sneezing and itching. You know, I had eczema um, and then I also had asthma, which definitely, you know, made it harder for me to do the little runs that you have to do at school. And I always felt different. I always had my inhaler. So it's just, it's just been a big part of my life. Uh, and, and like I said, having that ability to see both adults and kids, which is inherent in the specialty of allergy and asthma, where you will definitely see adults and kids in your practice. It's, it's a very, that's not very common, right? Um, besides family practice, you, there aren't very many fields where you're going to see both adults and kids and be a subspecialist and allergy is one of them. So it just all ended up working out very, very well for me. Um, and it just felt like the right fit. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. Who do you think is well-suited to your specialty of allergy immunology? And who do you think would not be a good fit? If you're a medical student, maybe a second-year medical student, and you're thinking about you know, your different specialties, who should think about this? And who should say, eh, I may not actually end up happy on that? It is mostly an outpatient kind of field. And so you can be a hospital-based allergist and do consults for people that are in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, most allergists are practicing out in the community. And so you're in an office and you're seeing patients. And so people that want to be in the hospital, people that want to uh, have that kind of environment, maybe this isn't the right field for them. Some people feel, depending on how you build your practice, you know, you might end up seeing mostly allergic rhinitis, which is the allergies of the nose. And for some people that can feel really boring, you know, because they don't feel like it's life or death, you know, or 
it's, it's more of a lifestyle issue, right? Allergic rhinitis or conjunctivitis. It's not something that is uh, that can lead to early death, but it, it's definitely something that causes people to have a poor quality of life. So it's really, if you've never had allergies like I have, you know, if you've never been that kid that's got those itchy eyes that are debilitating or itchy skin that causes you to have weird rashes, then sometimes you're not as sympathetic to those patients, you know, um, and you don't understand their suffering. And so, um, and because it's not a life or death condition, um, I think that for some people, it just doesn't lend to them feeling like they're making a difference. Um, but for me, I really see the big difference that I'm making. And then obviously, as we talked about asthma, you know, can be, you know, can be life-threatening. And so it's just, it's, it's kind of the perspective, you know, that you take on it. But I think for people that like that constant, um, kind of adrenaline rush that you get maybe from working in the emergency room or doing surgical procedures, uh, I think, for that kind of a person, allergy immunology is not going to, it's not going to cut it. So you talked a little bit about changes that have occurred in recent times, including uh, biologics um, and including sublingual delivery um, when you're addressing people's allergies. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about what you see coming down in the next decade or so in the future? Yeah, I think that the food allergy space is going to see some shifts. I think right now with food allergies, we're mostly just doing avoidance, right? So if you're allergic to peanuts, you're just avoiding peanuts. But now we're, we're slowly starting to move into that space of potentially having some kind of an oral immunotherapy. So same, similar kind of mechanism with the other form of immunotherapy, but basically desensitizing your body to the food. Um, and so there's still a little bit of a ways to go in that, but I do see some movement and shift uh, where you might not be cured, but at least people won't have to be as scared to be accidentally exposed to the food. Uh, and so there's a a peanut patch that might be coming out, which is literally like a transdermal, in a, yeah, transdermal patch that um, that slowly, you know, uh, transmits a little bit of peanut into your system, and then there's also a powder-based therapy that's coming out. So, so there's there are I think there's shifts in the food allergy space that are coming. So that's interesting and exciting, and hopefully. We'll have some really clear data on all of that, uh, and then and then I think the asthma space continues to evolve, and the allergic rhinitis space right now. Again, you know, with the sublingual tablets, I think we're going to get more sublingual tablets, maybe for tree, um, maybe for other things, and so and maybe we'll be able to use them all together at one point. So I think there's there's shifts that are happening in my field, which are which are very exciting. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If someone wants to get into your specialty, what advice would you give them? 
I think it's really to for any subspecialties to expose yourself to that subspecialty. Make sure that during you know your res during your medical school career, during your residency, you know, as a medical student or during your residency, if you kind of have an idea of what you want to get into, you need to do a rotation. You need to do multiple rotations if you can, you know, in that field or take your time to participate in a research project. And it doesn't always have to be a lab-based research project. It can be more of a clinical research project, which can really give you more insight into the field also. So, you know, there's lots of ways to kind of expose yourself, but I think exposure is the key no matter what, because uh, until you have good exposure, it's just kind of, you're dreaming up this life or this kind of specialty in your head. And I think, I think you, you might be surprised once you actually get into the day to day, what it really feels like. But that's to say, you know, in any field of medicine, I think there is some monotony, you know, in any field of work in general, you know, after you've been in it for a little while, everything's going to feel uh, like normal. Right. And so you just have to remember, it's not always going to feel exciting for the rest of your life to, you know, but what is cool about medicine, as we've discussed is that, you know, there are, there are changes and there is, um, you know, there are new treatments and new advances. And so you will constantly be learning in medicine, no matter what field you're in, which is, which is really neat. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. Once you've started a career in allergy and immunology, what advice would you give for building a satisfying uh, career that's also sustainable? Yeah, and I think that's always a work in progress, especially for me. <laughs> but I, I personally love allerg the field because it it does encompass so many different areas. So you know, I'm seeing stuff that involves the skin. Um, I mentioned eczema, but we also see hives or urticaria patients. Um, uh, we also see contact dermatitis, which is if you're allergic to metals and your skin reacts, for example, or, you know, lotions or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of skin conditions. We see the lung conditions like asthma. We see immunological conditions. We see the food allergies and the environmental allergies. So there's a lot of, I think, there's a broad scope of what we're what we're dealing with, and that's what that's what excites me. But for some allergist immunologists, they really just want to focus on the immunology. They really just want to focus on those patients that don't have a good immune system, right? So they build their career on that. Or some people who really just want to focus on asthma and severe asthma, or you know, um, really just have a path in asthma. So you can, you have a lot of different options. I feel in my field, which is exciting. Uh, and you can either have a general practice where you're seeing a little bit of everything, or you can kind of target a specific disease state that you're really interested in. So, and I think that's true for a lot of subspecialties, but I think with, uh, allergy and asthma, it's just very particular. I mean, it's just, it just feels like, you know, you can just do the lungs or you could just do the immune system or you could just do the skin. You know, there's some allergists that just want to focus on eczema. So it's just, it's neat that we we deal with so many different um, parts of the body. That's what I really love about it. Mm -hmm. 
are listening to Medical Murmurs. Why do you think we're seeing nut allergies on a scale today that we didn't 30 years ago? Or gluten allergies? That's really the million-dollar question. And I think gluten in particular is more of a societal um, phenomenon, meaning I'm not sure how many people truly have a gluten allergy. Uh, I don't think that the literature really supports that we're seeing an uptick necessarily in gluten allergy, but I do think that there was a, a kind of a popularizing of gluten allergy of some sort in the media and in pop culture. So I'm not sure about the gluten allergy part, but I can say for the um, the nut allergy and other food allergies that we are that we do see consistently a little bit of uh, you know we have been seeing a rise and more so in developed countries like the U.S. and Europe. And so what do we know? I mean, like I said, it's a million-dollar question. We don't understand it because it's such a hard thing to study. There's so many different variables that are involved that it's really hard to do a a really good study to figure out exactly what might have shifted all, all of this and what's causing these allergies. Is it the way that we process foods and make foods? Is it the way that our body's dealing with food that, you know, there's so many different um, theories out there. And so really, I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question. Um, But for me, I do think that in, in my head, I feel like it's probably the way that we're processing foods and the way that we're genetically modifying foods so that we can grow them faster and more efficiently and things like that. I think that it's changing the way that the food proteins look to our body and it probably doesn't look as natural as it used to, you know? So that's my personal theory, but I have, you know, there, it's not based on any kind of research. And I think that there are just, just so many variables to, uh, to food allergies and why they might be rising. So I, I want to address something um, that I think, you know, we have to touch on carefully here, uh, no matter what our specialty is. But um, I see a lot of patients who report that they have celiac disease or a gluten sensitivity who have not been tested for antibodies um, or had other tests to establish a sensitivity. Um, and you know, my feeling uh, after a long time in practice is that some of them may have celiac. Uh, some of them may have a, a, a true degree of sensitivity, um, but some of them may not. And I, there seems to be, and this is purely in my experience, uh, significant overlap uh, with patients that have uh, diagnoses of anxiety or depression or OCD. Um, or other psychological diagnoses or symptoms. Um, and there's a, for me, a, a chicken and egg question, which is that if you are suffering um, an organic uh, illness, if you, for instance, have celiac or sensitivity to gluten and the impact that has on your life, that can create anxiety, uh, no doubt. By the same token, if you've got anxiety, uh, it is possible if you're looking for an organic cause uh, to go through I've seen people who have eliminated many, many foods from their diet, um, seeking for 
see, seeking out um, an organic fix for some of their symptoms. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's it's an interesting nexus for me. Uh, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so I do think that, you know, that there is a component of, like you said, that chicken or the egg. Like, is it uh, anxiety caused by an existing food allergy or is it that the person is an anxious person and trying to figure out why their nonspecific GI issues are present, right? Which can also be related to anxiety. And so um, I think the key thing that I want to mention here is that a true food allergy, which we consider what we call an IgE-mediated food allergy, which is IgE is the protein that causes the release of all of these really, uh, you know, inflammatory mediators that can lead to anaphylaxis. That is a particular situation. You know, that is what we call food allergy. And then anything outside of that has to have a different term, right? So if you eat a food and you become short of breath, you get hives, your face starts to swell up and you need epinephrine to control those symptoms, that is what we call a food allergy. People use the term food allergy very loosely and that is an issue. That's an issue that's causing problems for people with true food allergies, okay? Because then their food allergy that could cause a life-threatening reaction is not taken as seriously. And so uh, food sensitivity, which really, I mean, the definition of that just means that you eat the food and you don't feel that you're digesting it properly. Maybe you get you're bloated, maybe you feel constipated, maybe you have loose bowel movements, um, maybe it causes stomach cramping, those kind of nonspecific symptoms that um, that we can't really pinpoint what the exact cause is, that, that we kind of lump into this food sensitivity, right? And celiac is a very specific condition, right? You get pretty, you get very sick with celiac too. You have weight loss, you have rashes. And I know that there's variations of celiac, but you know, in that a GI could, uh, a gastroenterologist could speak to a little bit more in depth with about, but at the end of the day, um, true celiac will cause pretty significant symptoms, right? And so I think that food sensitivity is what you're talking about. And those people who come in with nonspecific complaints of my stomach hurts after I eat or I get constipated or have loose bowel movements or whatever, um, oftentimes it can be related to anxiety, you know, and depression and, um, and, you know, there's that concept of butterflies in your stomach, Right. Um, and I think that holds very true in the, in these situations where we, when we are not feeling well mentally, it can, our symptoms can be more physical, you know, and those physical symptoms tend to be sometimes mostly in our GI tract. Um, it can also be headaches. It can be pain. Chronic pain can sometimes be from anxiety and, um, depression. So there's a lot of links to our mind body that sometimes we're not um, recognizing. And even doctors, I think, fail to recognize. So there are a lot of patients that get unnecessary testing 
and I try not to do that in my office. Uh, if the patient isn't presenting with symptoms that are consistent of a true food allergy, um, I don't tend to do testing because the testing that I'm doing is looking for a true food allergy. Sometimes I'll do the testing just to show the person that, hey, look, your test is negative. And so that kind of helps them feel more relaxed that they're not going to die from a food allergy, right? Um, because I'm telling them they don't have a true food allergy. And then we can have more of a discussion once we have some objective evidence, right, that they're not allergic to whatever food they're worried about being allergic to technically. And we can have a conversation about just all of those other things like stress, um, anxiety, and other kind of factors that might be playing into their symptoms. You know, I talked about mental real estate before. And for instance, someone who has chronic persistent asthma, um, you know, it takes up a lot of mental real estate because they, if they've got symptoms all day, they can actually live with this fear at the back of their mind of dying uh, through a lot of their life. Um, I'm impressed by people um, who have in fact tested negative for food allergies who it still takes up their concern about a food, either sensitivity or intolerance, whatever terminology they are carrying around. Um, it's, it's a lot of mental real estate and a lot of their life is organized around it. I've seen people who have eliminated multiple categories of food um, and uh, in their social lives, in their cooking at home, it's a major, major issue. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, as uh... As an allergist, I do see a lot of patients who have self-diagnosed themselves with a food allergy or sensitivity, um, like you said, whatever diagnosis that they've come up with, and then they come to me, and I'm actually, I'm actually really happy when those people come to me because, again, we can, um, you know, we can do some testing that might help relieve some of their concerns because sometimes it can, it can be an eating disorder, you know, masked as uh, this diagnosis of a food allergy. And so really, you know, understanding that people are going through, uh, there can be multiple things happening at once in their lives, right? And so maybe they've always had an issue with food. Uh, maybe they've always have, an un have had an underlying um eating disorder of some sort. And then all of a sudden now in the media, food allergies are really big and hot, you know? And so using this kind of food allergy situation as a way to hide behind, you know, food allergies and hide that underlying food, um, uh, you know, underlying, uh, eating disorder is sometimes, um, you know, is sometimes what happens. And so, so yeah, so I, you know, like I said, sometimes patients come in, they have these nonspecific symptoms, I'll test them and we'll figure out that they're not truly allergic. And then it's really just working with the person and seeing if they're open to putting one food at a time into their diet uh, that they were previously worried about eating, right? And so I show them the testing results that you're negative. And so is there a food that you've been missing that you might want to try first? And so then we'll put that into their diet. And sometimes I'll even have them come in and do what we call a food challenge, you know, where they can bring in the food if they're worried about eating it on their own. They can bring in the food and 
I'll expose them to it um, slowly over the course of two hours. And then we'll kind of see where it goes from there, you know? Um, And so sometimes that works really well for people, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes someone, sometimes the person's not ready for that. You know, sometimes they're just, they wanted either validation. And if you can't give them validation, then they don't really want to hear anything else. And that's okay. Um, But sometimes they are there to kind of help dissect this out and help figure out, okay, am I, am I being unreasonable? And is there not really something that I need to worry about? So sometimes just relieving their anxiety over something that they thought they should be anxious about is enough. So it really just depends on the person and uh, the situation and exactly what's going on and getting across the message that you need to get across in kind of a more compassionate way. Um, and then seeing if you can figure out if there's something else going on that isn't being addressed, like an underlying anxiety disorder or depression. Um, but that's not to say, you know, I, I think that every, making sure that you haven't missed a diagnosis is super important, you know? So I always have these patients also see a gastroenterologist just to make sure that there isn't something underlying, you know, maybe they do need a colonoscopy, maybe they do need an endoscopy, maybe something is happening, you know? And so I I don't, I don't like to go to that diagnosis until we've made sure that there isn't some other underlying issue going on. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. As an emergency physician, what I often see is someone who's having a first attack of hives without an obvious precipitant, and it's been going on for a few days, and it's driving them crazy. That's, that's a really common scenario for me. Is just seeing, uh, right. And so you're probably giving them steroids and uh, oral antihistamines, I'm assuming, when they come into the emergency room. Certainly antihistamines, not always steroids. Good, good. (laughs) Because actually they shouldn't be getting oral steroids um, because they can actually make their hives worse. And so usually after a course of oral steroids, they'll have kind of a rebound effect um, and they'll have even worse symptoms. And so, uh, in general, um, you know, the treatment for these patients is, uh, higher doses of antihistamines. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, there's H1 blockers and then there's H2 blockers. So we have to use a combination of those kind of things. Sometimes, uh, Montelukast can also help with, um, those patients in some certain situations. So it's mostly just making sure that they're not truly reacting to anything in particular. I was wondering if you could tell me a patient story about someone who's had um, a severe food allergy, perhaps something that can be potentially life-threatening, how it was affecting their life and what you guys did together. Well, I think actually I would like to talk about my co-host for the podcast that I do. Um, so, um, Courtney is really open about her food allergies, so I know she won't mind me talking about her. Um, but you know, being a part of the food allergy community now a little bit more, 
through my connection with Courtney and doing this podcast. So Courtney suffers from food allergies. She also has eczema. She also has asthma. um, And she also has uh, like allergies of her eyes and nose. She's literally has, you know, the whole picture of an allergic person. And from being on actually Instagram and uh, being, you know, as a doctor kind of on Instagram and being in this community uh, where Courtney and I are doing episodes focused on food allergies and asthma and all of this stuff. We, we really interviewed a lot of people who have food allergies and I've really understood not only people who have personal food allergies, you know, and what they go through on a daily basis of, you know, just making sure that they're safe if they're going out to eat, making sure that they're safe when they're grocery shopping, making sure that they're safe, um, you know, in so many different situations and how it affects their family life in certain situations. Um, we've talked about all of those things, um, even culturally, you know, if we've talked to some people who are of Asian descent, for example, um, and they have certain cuisines that they're that their families are used to eating. But if you have an allergy to something that's eaten frequently um, in your cultural um, realm, that can change and shift the way that you interact with your family even, you know? And so food allergies are are really life-changing. You know, they can really have a huge impact, especially for mothers with children with food allergies. You know, as I mentioned, I'm pregnant um, and this is going to be my first child. And I think about that all the time. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And I think about that all the time because I'm a fairly allergic person. So I don't, like I said, I don't have food allergies, but you know, I could have a pretty allergic child. So, um, And, you know, having a child with food allergies is life-changing for a parent. You know, they're constantly worried that somebody won't be aware and will give their child something that could not just make them sick, but could ultimately lead to death. And so it is, uh, it's, it's understandable why that would cause fear and anxiety for somebody. Could you could you think of a you know a, a specific uh, case and just give me a feeling for how those discussions went, how that parent talked about the way it was impacting them, their fears, you know, the things they had to do, the changes in their life. Yeah, I mean, I had one particular mom whose child was, uh, you know, allergic to eggs and milk and fish, and um, you know, fortunately the eggs and milk, the child did overcome or did grow out of those allergies. But when she was, when I first diagnosed her, she was, you know, she was really, really, really scared. And she started to cry. As soon as we finished the testing, um, I told her the results. She instantly started to cry and she was very, very emotional and just did not, she couldn't, really put her head around it. She didn't, she was just, you know, so scared that something was going to happen to her child because she works and she has to leave her child with a daycare, um, which means she has to put her trust in someone else taking care of her child. And, um, and I think that it really changed, you know, the next visit she brought her husband, um, so that, she could feel supported and that, you know, that he could understand what was going on. Um, I've even had, she actually also brought in her mother at one point 
because um, she needed everyone that was around the child to understand the severity. And sometimes older grandparents, because this feels like a new thing that's happening, they, they sometimes don't believe it. Um, and so, you know, uh, and so it's really just, uh, you know, counseling, not only sometimes the parents, but also extended family that's around the child to make sure that they understand that this is real, you know, that this is serious and that this could lead to a potentially fatal reaction, you know, so that everyone's on board and everyone's being as careful as they possibly can. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it, it brought on a lot of changes in her life in particular, and obviously in her family's life. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any questions. Yeah. I mean, if what, what kind of things, you know, how did she put it into practice? Because uh, for people that haven't lived with this, you know, they may not fully understand the changes that have to be made. Sure. So I think that, uh, the food allergy community does, you know, moms with kids with food allergies end up doing a lot of different things. They end up cooking every meal for their child, making sure that they're sending every meal um, instead of relying on the daycare to make meals for them. Um, they're actually packing, you know, even if they're paying for those meals, they sometimes they don't want to trust those meals. So they they end up um, making sure that they're they're take they're taking food for their child to whatever event they're going. Sometimes it means um, not going to large family gatherings uh, because they're worried that uh, other people in the family aren't taking things as seriously as they need to be. And so putting their child at risk of having a reaction because a family member doesn't believe that their child has this allergy. Um, and so, like I said, you know, it can cause rifts within the family too. Um, and then, um, and then really it's just, yeah, having a, a consistent plan of action and making sure that everybody knows where the EpiPen is. So, or I'm saying, or epinephrine device, I shouldn't say EpiPen, epinephrine device is, um, uh, so that, you know, everyone understands how to use that device when it needs to be used, when 911 needs to be called. So it's always education. You know, you're constantly educating people that are going to be around your child on how to manage their, uh, on how to make sure that they're, they're ready, you know, to take care of, you know, so you, you can't easily just leave your child with somebody. It involves a lot of prepping and involves a lot of education. Um, and so I don't, I think parents are used to, you know, oh, I'll just call a babysitter and they'll come and take care of my child. But for food allergy patients, parents, it's it's more of an involved process. You know, it's do you trust this person? Do you trust that they'll make the right judgments? Do you trust that they'll be as careful as they need to be with your child? Uh, so I think it's just constant fear in the back of your mind every time you leave your child with someone that that person won't be as careful as you are, obviously. Um and that something awful could happen to your child. And unfortunately, those situations do occur. You know, I have been, um, I've been working with uh, an, a, a foundation called Elijah's Echo, which is, um, which was founded because a little boy who was only three 
um, and I might be getting his age wrong, but I think he was three or four. Um, and this was in 2000, not very long ago, November of 2017. I believe it's been a, a couple of years now. And he was in, he was dropped off at daycare. Um, the daycare knew that he had a milk allergy, multiple allergies. Um, but in particular, the milk allergy, uh, they ended up giving him a grilled cheese sandwich and, um, and then not recognizing that he was having a food allergy and he ended up, uh, dying, you know? Um, and so because of that whole experience, his parents who are super strong and amazing have created this whole foundation to raise awareness and to do education within daycares in particular, um, because, you know, daycares are not always um, mandated to have a ton of policies in place. And so they've even um, gone to the government and there's a new Elijah's law that mandates that daycares have some form of food allergy education. So they've really done so much since their son has passed away. Um, but it's just, you know, those are the kind of situations that every food allergy parent um, is scared of. Right. You know, something, um, maybe you could tell me whether you agree with this, but I've noticed that not among the parents, but among um, people who might be babysitters or extended family, there's an impression that epinephrine is a scary drug and maybe too much hesitancy to give it. Do, have you come across that? Yes, that, that fear of using epinephrine. Yeah. And I think that that's something that as allergists, we educate parents on all the time um because i'm I, i'm personally uh, i mean i've been a doctor for 27 years and i have not seen anyone uh harmed by using epinephrine but i have seen people that should have had epinephrine earlier exactly and so really you know early epi is our motto um if you feel that um you know that there's even if they're in your mind it crosses your mind that, oh no, you know, this, my child isn't breathing well, or, um, you know, they're vomiting uncontrollably. I, they might've been exposed to a food. I tell my parents that you have to use the epinephrine, um, and you have to educate caregivers on when to use the epinephrine. And so you're absolutely right there, there, you know, there can be side effects from using any medications, but, um, with, epi with epinephrine, when you need it, you need it. And if you don't use it, and if you don't use it uh, immediately, then the consequences are much worse than a possible side effect. Um, and, you know, most, uh, most studies show that really you're not going to have a life-threatening arrhythmia or any kind of major issues from using epinephrine. Um, I think that we have enough data on epinephrine use that, uh, shows that it's not, uh, it, it'll make you feel jittery. It'll make your heart rate go up. It'll make you feel, um, just not yourself necessarily, but it's not going to be life-threatening to use that epinephrine. However, if you don't use it, that is life-threatening. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what I, you know, what I've seen that people are hesitant. I've, in, I've actually seen doctors hesitant to give epinephrine. Yeah. And that, you know, that I understand. And, you know, I'd mentioned that as an allergist, you're not really dealing with life and death, but with allergy immunotherapy, when, when you give shots to patients, there, there is a risk of possible anaphylaxis. 
in the office. And so um, I have had to deal with it's very, it's rare, but it does happen. So I have had to deal with anaphylactic reactions in the office and they're, they're scary. You know, it is scary. It is scary to watch somebody have a reaction and then to have to be responsible to stop that reaction and to use something that, you know, is going to be putting a needle in their skin. Even as a doctor, I can see, I mean, in the beginning when, you know, when I first started and was new to practice out in the world by myself, you know, it was, it was a very scary experience to have to use epinephrine on somebody in the office. But, you know, now that I've been doing it for 10 plus years, it, you know, all of that feels not as scary, but I absolutely understand why people would be scared to do something like that. Um, and if, if we as doctors are nervous, then I, you know, we can understand why a parent would be scared to do that or why a friend would be scared if they're, you know, or, uh, you know, any kind of relative or anyone who's around somebody that's having a reaction, why they would be hesitant. They're not providers. They're not doctors. They're not used to doing these things, you know? So it is, it is scary to have to um, take a needle and put it in someone's thigh. So that's a big part of the education is to get people past that fear and yes. realize that the greater good lies with once you have that suspicion of an allergic response, going ahead and giving the epi. Yes. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. So what would you say are the highs and the lows of a life working in allergy and immunology? I think the the highs are just, you know, um, having those relationships with patients. I think as any, uh, any physician, you kind of, you really, you, people really entrust you with a lot of their personal experiences and their lives and they, they put a lot of trust in you. And so it's just those relationships that are really the highs, you know, having, um, I've become really close to some of my patients over the years and just all those relationships that you develop. That's just, that's why you do it. You know, when you make someone feel better and they, their life changes because of that, that's, those are the highs, you know? Um, and then obviously I think the lows are, are also caused by patient interaction sometimes, you know, sometimes you, you have a bad day when you have a couple of patient interactions that don't go the way that you anticipated. And, um, and those are always, those are always difficult because, you know, it's always in our nature to want to make people feel good, to want to have, um, positive relationships with everyone that we're encountering. And inevitably when you're, when you're seeing, you know, 15 to 20 new people a day, there might be some people that you don't build that connection with that, you know, that don't understand the way that you're communicating with them necessarily. Maybe it doesn't work for them, or maybe, you know, they're coming in already um, in a very anxious and space. And, and for whatever reason, the way that you interact with them, it, it doesn't help relieve that anxiety. And maybe it it heightens that anxiety. And so, you know, those are the moments when you have lows uh, in medicine, I think is just those interactions. And then obviously, you know, any experiences when a patient doesn't do well um, under your care, those are obviously moments where you just feel 
um, not so great. But I think that all of those things are just true in medicine in general for people. Dr. Payal Gupta, thank you so much for joining me on Medical Murmurs. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes.